Hey friends, welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. And welcome to the second conversation in our series of conversations entitled The Moment of Now. As I think about the moment of now and how we're moving through it, I want to say happy Pride Month and happy Juneteenth. Um, These are such important Uh, memory-making events that we commemorate on a yearly basis um, that have their roots in emancipation and liberation. And I think that's such a beautiful place to ground us. In our conversation today with Dr. Obrey Hendricks, who is also the author of Christians Against Christianity. Our dialogue today really gets to dance, a beautiful dance between spirituality and politics and narrative of personal story. And I'm excited to share that with you. Um, This conversation really helps to challenge me as I think about um, the concepts of left and right in this political terminologies and also apply that into spiritual spaces, the impact and implications of locating ourselves within the left and in the right. What is the left? What is the right? <laughs> um, as we use these, these terms to sort of stick out political sides, um, what are we signaling? Is it important? I think as we have these conversations, we're here in the United States waiting on the ruling um, on abortion for the Supreme Court. We're witnessing the passage of a lot of anti-trans legislation and seeing um, a lot of rights rolled back as it relates to individuals, humanity, but especially queer people. And so what might there be within that for those who identify as Christian um, to understand this moment of now, um, to understand the Christian right, the, the Christian left? I think there's also lessons in this conversation about organizing and social justice um, to ground us in our actions for right now. And so if you want to continue these conversations, um, I just want to invite you uh, to two spaces that we have going on right now to be able to process even some of these questions some more in different ways. One of those is um, Constanza Eliana's Anti-Oppression Academy, which is hosted on a Mighty Networks platform. I get to collaborate with her. Um, We'll leave that link in the show notes, and I want to invite you into that community. But also um, the Patreon community here. Um, You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Tommy Allgood. And I don't want to overpromise, but I know there's some conversations 
around how we can be in more intentional community and regular community with you who listen to the podcast. And so if you're interested in digging into some of those questions about definitions and terms and implications and thinking a little bit more deeply about what the moment of now requires from each of us, we want to invite you into those spaces um, to practice anti-oppression, to practice liberation, to practice radical relationships. We will see you on the other side. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. Let's hit him with the remix. Oh, well, y'all got to change yes. that. Yes. <laughs> what do we do? Uh, we leave our f bombs in and. Let's tell some stories. As long as white people are bound, the people in power are bound. They're gonna keep us bound to the same thing that they're bound to. Out of, uh, the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That I think out of the overflow of the spirit, the body does. Challenge some narratives. Why? Why is that the best that God could offer you? Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. This. Is um, yeah. and I feel like art is the expression of the heart where uh, words fail. Wow. Oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. Unfiltered. I feel like that's gotta sound strange. Permission to be. Uh, actually, my 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 literary agent when we were talking about what book might I write, he was like, "I mean, a black man with hope is an interesting book." <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> Good evening, friends. Well, maybe wait. Can't even. I don't know when you're listening to this. So if it is evening for you, good evening. If it is morning for you, good morning. If it is wherever you are, hey, welcome to the permission to be podcast we are so grateful to be with you uh we have a really exciting i think i say that a lot too y'all we have a really beautiful conversation uh before us today dr obery hendrix adjunct professor um, of departments of, uh, of religion and african and american and african diaspora studies at Columbia University is with us. Dr. Hendricks also teaches at Yale. He was the past president of Payne Seminary. And he has written on topics like the politics of Jesus, rediscovering the true revolution, <clears throat> excuse me, rediscovering the true revolutionary nature of Jesus' teachings and how they have been corrupted um, in his ladle, latest book. Let me just pull it up so I don't make sure that I name that correctly. His latest book is Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith. Welcome to Permission to Be, Dr. Hendricks. How are you today? Um, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> that was not an editorial comment at all. <laughs> Welcome uh, to being human. Just having an al this allergy. No, things are well. I'd also like to mention that uh, 
I am Professor Emeritus at New York Theological Seminary. Mm. I don't want to uh, give them short shrift. I was there for uh, about a dozen years. And so um, wow. I do want to mention that. Um, but all is well, thank you. You know, just- You are uh, busy. Well, I'm an adjunct. I mean, I mean, did I say adjunct? I mean, Professor Emeritus. Okay. I'm retired from there. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, um, things are well. Just trying to negotiate this um, regime of, <clears throat> pardon me, this um, this moment of manifest political evil that we are in. <laughs> and uh, I think to call it any less than uh, a moment of evil is to give it short shrift. Um, it's evil. Evil is it's when you uh, harm innocents, innocent people. Uh, just because you can, or to serve your own interests, um, that's that's evil, and we're seeing that every day go on to, uh, on the uh, in the political terrain, uh, on the part of the right wing, and so this is an evil time. Um, and uh, one of my favorite writers, um, uh, <coughs> um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He wrote a book entitled An Evil Hour. And I think we're in evil hour now. So that's my long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, I mean, but that's re it's, it's really pertinent. It's really insightful. Um, it contextualizes us uh, for, for how we're coming to the conversation. We were talking a little bit beforehand of we're all kind of like, whoo coming in it's like skirt and and and, and so um and just naming also the the context of, of uh what how you would describe like evil um and in the forces that are happening in our political discourse and how that's affecting us right and and so it's it's a beautiful container to shape our conversation with um okay. i do want to give you space we all this is permission to be um to maybe tell the audience a bit about yourself um uh, you had mentioned you write to your aunt kate when you're thinking about writing and maybe just take some space to expound uh, and introduce yourself to the audience well, I uh, thank you. I was born uh, in Farmville, Virginia, where uh, schools were closed for five years rather than desegregate them. Um, so I was born in segregation, believe it or not, born in struggle. I, I grew up, <clears throat> my family all moved north to Newark. Uh, and uh, I grew up, um, I, I guess, other than growing up in church, my most important form of experience was in the uh, Black Cultural Nationalist Movement, uh, an organization headed by Mary Baraka. And I was a street soldier, and uh, that shaped my understanding of what commitment to a cause is and what, in the Christian context, what uh, discipleship is. Um, the, will, uh, the, the total um, commitment uh, to a principle and in our case, though we were, many of us soldiers were young and didn't know what was at stake, we, we had nonetheless a willingness 
to die for what we believed in. And um, uh, don't ask me, that was a long story, but I ended up years later on Wall Street. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, from there, I was there about eight years or so. There I, I got a good look at some of the internal workings of, of capitalism and uh, uh, how deleterious it is to the spirit. Um, you know, I, I fell prey to the materialism of it to the point where I valued people for what they had or who they knew for a good while until I um, realized uh, how badly I had fallen and I extricated myself. Um, some years later, I, I found myself at uh, in seminary. Um, well, the process is when my father died when I was 33, I was in his... <clears throat> I was speaking at his funeral and uh, standing in the pulpit, I, I didn't feel a call into the ministry, but I realized that uh, the church, which I had left, that the church was to be my site of struggle and service. Um, um, I, I, I ended up in seminary uh, a couple years later, years or so later, and um, while in the seminary, um, I realized, thank the Lord, that my calling was not to the pastoral ministry, but that I had <laughs> gifts, of, that I had gifts of, of scholarship. A, a black woman, um, young black woman at the time, Clarice Martin, who was a New Testament scholar who's now at Colgate University, um, she convinced me that I could do a PhD, even though you know I, no one in my world had a, had a, anything near a doctorate. Um, and uh, I was, I ended up at Princeton University um, <clears throat> under John Gager and Elaine Pagels, who wrote uh, the Gnostic Gospels, um, both of whom had gotten death threats um, when they um, published their seminal works. John Gager, other advisor, um, <clears throat> he published a book on Paul. I don't recall the exact title, but in it, he, he um, introduced the notion of cognitive dissonance in, into New Testament studies. They both got death threats. What that mean to me is that there was nothing I could write that was too radical for them. Mm. So mm. I was in a perfect, a perfect place. And uh, uh, and I, I, I really do believe that I was, was guided to be these places that I, I was. And then, um, so, so uh, since then, I've been a biblical scholar. Um, I've moved in the last, oh, decade or so uh, more toward um, the intersection of religion and political economy. And uh, that's where I am now. I'm uh, in, on the advisory board of the Institute of Christian Socialism. And like Martin Luther King, I, I see that uh, democratic socialism is closer to the biblical witness than capitalism. <laughs> and that is where I sit and that's where I stand right now. Just wanted to just offer some commentary about um, my reading of the book. I, I didn't finish it, but about what stood out to me, and then ask which, you. To, which book? Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You've written so many. <laughs> the most, the most recent I'm one. Gonna list um, them all. <laughs> yeah. Christians against Christianity. Christians okay. against Christianity. Um, so the the one thing that I appreciate is that the way you intertwined story with the theological. 
Um, and so it just made it so much more accessible. So you introduced it and you're telling about, you know, the church you grew up in and this grandmother and the other grandmother and your mother with the red hair. And, and so I'm just so pulled into story. And then, you know, you launch into the book and I just find from a reader standpoint, um, because I'm not a theologian. So something that is just like all super heavy theology is going to lose me, but you did a beautiful job of interweaving story. Um, but the story that leaped out at me, and I actually um, like left um, Tommy and Becca a, a voice message earlier today and sent them clips of it, is the one that you opened with, which was the one about um, Farmville and the schools closing for five years. And so it is just so interesting to me that that's what you led with. And that story just leapt out at me because I am trying to imagine in my mind, my county shutting down <laughs> schools mm. for five years just to keep black kids out, to keep any kids out. Yeah. And th the other thing that stood out to me about it is that I so often, I'm, I'm learning so much. I've learned more black history, which is really American history, but that aspect, this aspect of um, history in the last five years than I did in the prior 50. And um, I find a lot about, oh, well, there was a lynching or, you know, I've learned about Tulsa and I've learned about riots and revolts and all these things. But what your story hit upon is the, the subtle ways of um, the impact of that, because what you describe is um, the schools closed down for five years. So then the white kids are able to go to private school. But then you've got all these black kids who a whole generation that didn't get past elementary school education. And therefore, um, when the schools opened back up, they'd gone into farming and other menial labor jobs. And, and then the long-term ramifications, even all these years later, is the poverty that resulted from that. And yeah. so I'd just love to have you share a little bit about that from your perspective um, in your own words. Um, because that really that story really leapt out at me. Well, you know what what I in in um, telling the story of of um, my my family, um, uh, the depth of their involvement in the church, um, um, and about um, talking about Farmville. Um, you know, it, it's really it's part of the narration of the horror of right-wing evangelicalism because um, the schools being closed for five years, so-called Christian academies being opened for the white kids, which meant that we weren't supposed to be Christians, um, is orchestrated by um, Jerry Falwell <clears throat> and these heroes of right-wing evangelicals. <clears throat> and so as a result of um, closing the schools, there in Virginia, um, Farmville, Virginia, which is the county seat of Prince Edward County, is the poorest town in Virginia today. And um, I know folks, I have relatives, yes, who, who did not go beyond grammar school. Several cousins went to stay with relatives in other states, but um, young men stayed at home. And uh, so, you know, what would, so, and also in, in telling about my family and our responses and, and how I grew up in the church, also I wanted to present a counterpoint to 
uh, to what passes for Christianity in this mm. present moment. And that, <clears throat> and, and also a, a counterpoint of Afro-Christianity to mainstream or white Christianity. Um, I, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a setting that was based on love, not just love of, 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 of black folks, but love period. And we were taught to be good people and that um, we should uh, uh, follow the model of the, of the good Samaritan and uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself was, was, was very real. And also um, we're talking about real church community that's concerned about the common good, which is consistent with the biblical witness. Um, it was not um, a congregation as audience. It was real community. And we children were lifted up. And I grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 50s and 60s, graduated from high school in 71. But through the 50s and the 60s, you know, it was a terrible time for black folks. But then, and, um, uh, and we were given a sense of some bodiness, you know. Um, I mean, we're talking about the depth of humanity um, that's reflected uh, in, in, in black church underlying theology. And I want to offer that as a counterpoint mm -hmm. to what's going on today, which is not love-based, um, mm -hmm. which is not about building community, uh, which is individualistic and selfish such that I don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to care about whether you'll catch COVID from me if I get it. Um, and, and so that's why I, I, I shared that um, the way they did. And I also wanted to give a sense of the magnificence of the, of, of the black church experience of my, of my youth, recognizing that many churches today, black and white, really are audiences more than, uh, uh, more than communities and, and, and congregations. And just to, to share that old model of that old time religion that shared, that helped uh, and that empowered and inspired people, uh, black people so much that we could persevere and grow. And, you know, a, a, a boy from segregated farms in Virginia could actually believe that he could work on Wall Street, uh, having not grown up around money at all or knowing anything about it. And so those, that's, that was really the, the, the reasoning and the thinking behind uh, starting autobiographically. And the, and the last reason is this, I wanted folk who read the book realize I'm not writing as an outsider. I'm not criticizing as an outsider, I am an insider. So I have absolute, every absolute right to, uh, to critique what's going on in the name of Christ. I almost would say, I'm not sure the, from the history that I have learned, let me rephrase it this way, from the history that I have learned, I'm not sure the white church has ever known that sense of community mm -hmm. because of the privilege and entitlement. There's also a lack of leaning on each other. And I don't want to say, I, there's always exceptions. It's not a binary. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that <laughs> I, th I, I would assume, and please y'all correct me because I am the person who likes melanin and their skin in this room, you know, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, for white people, I, I think 
at least the history I know, you know, that's threatening to see this, look at this, these communities that love each other and take care of each other. And like the, the supremacy and the oppressor just wants to squash it. Um, yeah. And, and the, the irony of that you all were gathering in the truest form of what the Bible was portraying mm-hmm. uh, and what Jesus's life portrayed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that is just those moving pieces. We really have to pull that out and just examine that, um, which is, I think, what you do and you talk about and uh, honored to sit here and be able to hear your story and hear that depth of community. Um, yeah. yeah well- What's significant, um, I think, here is that mainstream Christianity, or we call it, uh, I guess we call it white Christianity, um, has never been untainted by a stratum of oppression or opposition. Mm -hmm. Um, Throughout the, you know, the early history of this country, of course, it was tainted by slavery. It allowed Mm -hmm. slavery. um, and and um, and then all on up through to today, and that has never been the case um, for um, Afro Christian Christianity. It's, it's it's not been oppositional, it's not been um, oppressive. Um, mm-hmm. It's been um, we might situate it in the resistance resistance um, uh, resistance um, discourse as opposed to mainstream, which was. Uh, which I guess we call a discourse of domination because it always had element of domination. So that's those those are the differences there, I think. Uh, I think that's that's an important difference, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a question about your your writing of the book. So what what is crystal clear to me, um, both from reading it and from having lived it, the last church I was in was, probably 90% white. So it was very much a white evangelical church. Um, And I didn't fully realize a lot of things until 2015. And you know what happened in 2015. So, and so I know from the the opening um, sentence, it's very clear, you want to, you know, counter slash expose, you know, the whole degradation of the Christian message um, by the evangelical right. So my question to you is, well, twofold. One, who is your target audience? And the second part is by bringing these details to light, what do you hope, you know, when a person gets to that final chapter, how do you, you, you put this message out into the world? What do you want to accomplish? What do you, um, what do you hope the end is? Have, you know, when somebody closes this book, having read this, your hope is that. Yeah, good, good, good question. Um, well, um, Christians against Christianity. I really, um, I guess I had a couple of goals. One was I, I really, I say in there in, in the introduction, I think uh, it's time to uh, to tell the truth or something like that. Um, I, I forget the exact phrase I use, but I, I it, it's time to set the, set the record straight. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. I want to set the record straight because um, the loudest voices in Christendom are from the right-wing evangelicals, uh, yes. and um, and uh, you know we who are not right-wing evangelicals um, uh, have a lot 
uh, we bear uh, a lot of the fault for that being the case because you know, we're, we're not, we've not been loud enough, we've not been active enough, you know, um, uh, on the aggressive left. Um, and so they are, um, they are, are, are uh, uh, okay, get some words, Aubrey. Um, <laughs> they are dominating. Mm -hmm. the, the discourse. So I, I wanted to um, just to push back. I, I, I wanted to to show that so many of their um, positions, so many of the, the positions that they stand on and that they um, claim to be um, um, uh, to be informed by their reading of the Bible. I want to show that they're not they're not biblical at all, um, and that. Um, and that in a in a real sense, so much of, of what they are about is literally anti-Christian in, in the sense of anti-gospel. It's anathema to the gospel. It's the yep. and it's anti because it is opposed mm -hmm. to, uh, uh, to the gospel. And so um, and I there are those who are confused, who know no better. I wanted to, I hope to to, to read some of them and so far, it seems I've been able to, to some extent, from the responses I've gotten, um, and I, you know, hope maybe against hope to make a dent um, in some of those who really are uh, who who are right wing evangelical believers, you know. But I, I realize that so many of them uh, are in that that group of people because. Um, not for reasons of faith, but reasons of, reasons of ideology and interests. And some of them are just are just hateful and racist. And they and they know uh, a fellow hateful racist person when they see it. So they so they support Donald Trump. And those people, um, there's no no reaching them. You know, we've always had them in, in America. Uh, I'd like to think though that most of them are uh, sincere. Uh, they're just sincerely wrong. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's really questionable. But I, I that's what I, I hope to do to reach some folks to um, at the very least to uh, uh, to evoke some some dialogue, some discourse, maybe some questions, um, and not just attacks on me. Um, which is why I wrote the introduction the way that I did to let them know that I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I blew my horn a little bit about my uh, uh, about my uh, qualifications. You know, um, and uh, and I'll tell you, and that's why I I uh, made sure to document everything that I said. And of all the attacks that I've read, nobody has said anything substantive. They said this is a hateful book, or this it's wrong. But they can't they they don't take issue with anything that I've said, because frankly, I don't think they 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 can counter those uh, those claims because they're just they're just wrong. They are wrong. And uh, yeah, and I'm and uh, and I'm right. <laughs> well, one of the things that it did for me that I found helpful, I have a an older friend, um, and not that he's he's just older than me. He's seventy four, and um, he is a former um, college professor and spent his whole life, um, you know, in social justice work and whatnot. And I was on Zoom with him a couple of Sundays ago. Because um, when I get really exasperated with these types of things, he's the person I go to. And 
like he's lived through all the civil rights stuff and everything else and knows everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's constantly challenging me when I was like, when I say, you know, these Christians and the hypocrisy and he's like, right-wing evangelical Christians, right? We, it is not all Christianity. It's not so all he's, he's, he's constantly on me. And so reading your book, I could just, I was reading your words and I could just hear him in my ear saying, this is what I'm talking about. It's, oh, you, you, you were so traumatized. Cause I, I've not been back to, it, it was just such a horrific experience. We had been in that church for like 15 years mm. and didn't realize we were the acceptable Negro until mm. <laughs> all, all, well, we got a hint of it when um, Obama became president, but even then it wasn't in your face type thing. But come 2016, you know, 2015, you know, with the primaries and mm -hmm. these people that I have been in community with all these years were like, you know, the ones who said Bill Clinton was unfit because of Monica Lewinsky are excusing mm -hmm. a thrice, mm -hmm. divorce, I mean, divorce, adulterer, mm -hmm. carnival barker. And it was just jarring for my husband and I after all this time. And so I left and I've not gone back. And so when I get on my high horse and start, you know, he's like, but you are talking about white Southern evangelical Christianity. And I am telling you that is not the totality of it. There is another side. And yeah. I want you to stop saying that that is Christianity. That is white evangelical right-wing Christianity. Yes, and yes. you're broad brushing the whole thing. And so um, reading, you know, to the point that, that I, that I got to um, with your book just kind of underscored that, because the people that you, the things that you're describing, that's that's what I was yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's important because evangelicalism was, uh, um, much of it was very progressive um, and socially uh, humane up until, um, pretty much up until uh, FDR. Um, but you know, um, the major abolitionists, most abolitionists were evangelicals and they were anti-capitalist um, evangelicals. They were um, uh, evangelicals who supported the uh, uh, the equality of women and who supported unions. And uh, and on on down the line, there was even one gentleman. I write. I think I write about in the book. Yeah, he uh, actually um, he was calling for the kinds of protections. That we that we wouldn't see for many for decades and decades later protections of uh, of labor, and so they were very progressive. Um, so it is important to talk, talk about that. But if I might just 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 say um, why it changed, um, you know, when um, when when FDR became president, he changed the philosophy of government from laissez-faire, like the government has no responsibility to care for the poor. Um, and, and the vulnerable, um, and that was the, the, the governmental philosophy. He changed that, said that, no, we do have a responsibility to care for the least of these, and right? And so we know his, his whole new deal, that's what was new about it. It was a new deal to take care and recognize responsibility um, for the welfare of the people, which is in line with the biblical witness, because when we go through it, we find that that princes and kings and those in governance and positions of authority are told to stand up for justice and righteousness um, and to care for the poor and the vulnerable, right? And they were specific uh, about that. And so, um, so although 
Roosevelt um, was much more in line with biblical ethics, the biblical witness. Um, the fact that he was, um, that rich people were no longer the focus of government. Uh, government no longer was no longer focused on serving the interests of the rich and uh, the wealthy and the capitalists, um, but was concerned about those in need. Well, those who were rich, they 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 couldn't believe it. I mean, and, and I I, I um, quote in Christians Against Christianity. I share a couple of the, the quotes that they. Uh, of the kinds of things they said. So what did they do? They started an offensive and offensive against uh, F FDR and the New Deal. Um, they formed the American Liberty League. Um, yeah, they they misused liberty then, just like they misuse it now. Uh, the DuPont brothers, another rich capitalist, formed that, and they went out and find uh, and found a uh, uh, a right wing evangelical preacher, uh, a, uh, a Reverend Feifeld. And they sponsored him to start an organization called Spiritual Mobilization, which had nothing to do with spirituality um, or mobilizing anything but money. And, and he, Feifel started this organ, um, started this evangelical movement to support um, the rich and the powerful and to denigrate social safety net and all of that. And that is, that has maintained, remained there of their political philosophy since that time. So we, you know, right, we see that radical yeah. thing and at that at that moment. And, and it's still the, the same. And, and one example is that they demonized socialism. Um, they demonized socialism as being uh, as being of the devil and all of that. Um, you know, when, when, when socialism is much more humane, uh, democratic socialism, much more humane than capitalism. And they're doing the same thing today. Um, you know, we have socialism already, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that's socialism, yeah. but still they demonize socialism because it helps average people. And Harry Truman said that, said that anything that helps everyday people, they, they will um, demonize and reject and call it socialism when really it is, it, it is just, you know, uh, humane treatment, uh, an acknowledgement of people's um, uh, needs. So that's that's sort of how we got where we where we are are today. But we recognize there of that there are still you know um, progressive and left wing uh, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, so yes, your your friend is right. We don't want to you know put them all. We don't want to put Barber, William Barber, and Jim Wallace and all those people. We don't want to. You know, smash them in with those the miscreants on the on the right wing like uh, Paula White, that sad sack, and people like that. Um, early on, I said I tried to address some of the fallacious. Um, uh, <clears throat> biblical interpretations that right wing evangelicals stand on. And um, I think it, it, uh, it's, in, it's important, you know, to say that, for instance, um, that by their own, it's, their own admission, often they aren't really Bible-centered. For instance, there was a poll taken 
uh, asking right-wing evangelicals if the Bible told, if they were, if their attitude about immigration was influenced by the Bible. And I think something like, more than half of them said, no, the Bible has nothing to do with it. Um, which is just crazy because the, 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 I mean, one of the main tenets of, of, of the Hebrew Bible is to look out for the ger, that we translate as stranger or immigrant. I mean, we find throughout, and it also says that uh, even tithing was um, prescribed, I believe it's in the book of Malachi. One of the reasons for tithing is to help take care of immigrants until they get on their feet. So I had to point that out. I had to also point out that even though uh, right-wing evangelicals have elevated abortion to the litmus test for whether you are really a Christian or not, that the Bible does not address abortion, much less say that it, it's, that it is a sin. And, and mm. um, it doesn't, well, it doesn't address voluntary uh, abortion. In Exodus 21, 20, uh, verses 22 and 23, it does talk about if a woman is pregnant, men are fighting and the woman's injured and her fetus is injured or killed that um, the punishment is an eye for an eye for the mother, the woman who's uh, walking the earth, but it's only a financial fine for the fetus. It makes a distinction between the two of them. And I'm not saying that abortion is right or wrong. I'm just talking about what the Bible says. The only place that we have any notion of a, a voluntary abortion is in Numbers 5, in which it says that if a woman is um, found to be is a woman is impregnated by someone other than her husband, the punishment is that um, the fetus she is carrying will be aborted by God. Okay, and th these things need to be pointed out. Why? Because we have a whole movement. They elected this sick piece of trash as president because he said that he was against abortion. Well, he doesn't, he was, he, he doesn't care one way or another. He doesn't care about anything or anyone, but they have used, misused the Bible, weaponized it uh, to mislead people, to get them all worked up in order that they might, uh, these people might um, serve their interests um, to become dominant in America so that we all will be forced to genuflect at the altar of their specious and distorted readings of the Bible. And on down the line, the same with homosexuality. Um, it's, um, I, 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 I worked hard to show that in the few, the handful of, of sayings in the Bible, passages in the Bible that are supposed to um, uh, demonize uh, homosexuality and, uh, and, and uh, present it as a, a sin. When you look at them in historical and cultural context, when you translate the, the, the Hebrew and the Greek terms correctly, it becomes clear that what, um, what the Bible says is too ambiguous about same gender loving uh, relationships to deny anyone's humanity, to, um, to demonize them, to uh, pass laws that uh, criminalize them. That's, it's just absolutely wrong. Not only that, it's wrong from the beginning because Sodom and Gomorrah was not about homosexuality. It was about gang rape, and the reason why uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed um, was for lack of hospitality. We see that Ezekiel says that, 
Um, Jesus uh, implies that in Mark, and we see some other places. So I wanted to point out how they get so many things, uh, so many things wrong. How the NRA, you have people with <clears throat> Christian churches holding services to sacralize, to consecrate, and to bless AR-15s, which were developed to kill people, and saying that there's a God-given right to own guns. It has nothing to do with God, you know, but we, but these things are continued, uh, continued to be uh, articulated and repeated and get people worked up, but has nothing to do with, with Jesus uh, and, and, and the gospel. And for Christians, it is anti-Christian, it is blasphemous to say these kinds of things uh, and to lie to the people about them. Um, to get them to uh, to be part of a dominationist movement, which is what it what what it is now. So I wanted to share that uh, to give some sense to, to folks of um, just how wrong these people are in their use of the Bible. Yeah, one of one of my um, writing mentors, Lisa Sharon Harper. That's the whole thing of even the term evangelical. She talks about like. I'm not even, she's like, I'm not even willing to relinquish the term evangelical. <laughs> and be, and she cites the history. Oh, you've already got your copy of it. Yeah, I blurbed it. So she sent it out. It's such a great, the book, the book is not in it, but it's, it's in a kit. It has all kinds of stuff. Anyways, oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, uh, we, we talked to her. Um, we, we, we've already interviewed her for fortune and I've been in her writing group for like, uh, since April, 2020. Um, um, but, but, she like so she even took it a step further that you know I'm not relinquishing the term evangelical and it's because of the history that you just cited, mm -hmm. um, and so so yeah you already know that one one thing that I wonder from your perspective you talked about um, you know the intersection of religion and politics and I, I live in the state of Georgia and so you know we're the ones who had the uh, Republican Secretary of State who stood up to. Um, Trump and refused to manufacture 11,000 votes. Mm -hmm. And um, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, um, you know, rig an election. Um, and um, so the Georgia legislature has responded to that by doing what has been done throughout history, rewriting the law. It has just been such a history lesson for me. I mean, I, I read about these things from the 50s and 60s about, you know, the laws and even going back further, reconstruction, the black codes and, and how law was used to abuse and oppress. And But I didn't think I would be seeing it um, played out in my home state um, in 2021. So they've rewritten the law and it's going to make it much easier to manipulate the vote in 2022 and 2024. So I guess my question the, the question that I have about all of that is when you look at the political landscape, because I know you're aware Georgia's not the only state that has done it, Arizona right. and some other states. What gives you hope now? Like where, when you look mm. at the the hijacking of um, uh, conservative Christianity um, and the the whole white nationalism infused with white evangelicalism, what gives you hope? Because sometimes I'll be honest, I just, my father is 80 and he's living through some of these things twice in one lifetime. And at times I just feel like I'm not going to see substantive, substantive change. Yeah. Um, so what gives you hope? 
Um, I don't know that I have uh, uh, hope. I mean, I, I mean, I, there's, I don't know what else to do than to continue to struggle. That's our gospel responsibility. But I think um, if there's something that gives me hope, it might be sort of perverse in that um, the hatred and the racism and just the manifest sickness is just going so far that um, uh, it might just end end up discrediting themselves. Um, that's, I mean, that's, if I have a hope, that's my greatest one because, you know, we don't see a lot of vision or it doesn't appear there's a lot of vision or, or, or character um, uh, or political courage on, on the progressive side to counter these people. Um, not only that, Barack Obama said, uh, oh, when he first uh, got into the presidency, he, in fact, I think he said when he was campaigning first, that it is important to, uh, to acknowledge, you know, one's, you know, religious values. I mean, we, you know, religious discourse must be part of the political discourse. And, I, and um, but, but we haven't learned that on the progressive side yet. And so it's so easy to paint us as um, as godless and, um, and 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 all that and um, and that and being able to ground one's politics in uh, in biblical ethics in a so-called biblical country uh, in this day and age is is very, is a great deal of power. But that's power that that we're not calling on. And so, you know, I don't see us, I don't see our side um, waging a, a strong fight to d defeat them. The only thing that I know is that um, evil can't prevail forever. I don't believe that it can. And I just think that they're going so far that they're going to just blow themselves up and show everybody just how evil uh, they are. Because if, if this guy, Kennedy from Mississippi could actually say to make the racist statement he made today about he wants uh, he he's upset about this whole thing about a black woman being appointed supreme court judge because he wants somebody who can tell the difference between a law book and some kind of a retail catalog i mean that is just so bald faced that 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 uh, hopefully that'll wake people up and make people see how sick that is and i guess one more thing um they might just really, it's starting to look like they might really be able to show what we already know, that Donald Trump is a traitor to this country who tried to overthrow government and dismantle uh, democracy. If that is the case, you know, a lot of people uh, who are, are somewhat in the middle and maybe just leaning his way, if, if it's handled right, um, that might wake some folk up. That's all I can, all I can think of. Other than that, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a scary time and it's getting more dangerous every day.
I'm always, I, I guess for me, um, as I'm listening to your story, interweave sort of your expertise, um, and also like in the culture, recognizing like this is my elder and like all the things that I'm learning. Um, I do feel hopeful, but I really I just kind of wanted to take a little bit of space and maybe name some of the deep observations that I've made as we've had this conversation. Um, starting with first your the story of your childhood and growing up in a time and living through where people actually took education away from people, the deep trauma of, of this. And the choice to have to support yourself to go to work but also the injury to the body. Mm. Um, to personhood, to humanhood. Mm. To have that experience, uh, but also be, I don't want to say insulated, because uh, I would say the, even though black the Black church has been this rock for us there's also been this place of deep pain and hurt people and we know hurt people hurt people mm -hmm. um and then i i think we uh, what i hear in your story is journey mm. and that we often look um and 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 try to fit people into these like clean uncomplicated boxes and I sit in a space and time where like I don't know I'm wrestling with the definition of Christian to be quite yeah. honest yeah um, yeah may I interject right there yeah absolutely yeah that is why in Christians Against Christianity I tried to um well I I identify the core of the gospel well not identify it I share what Jesus said is the core of the gospel, right? Um, he said uh, that, um, that that equal to loving God or equal to the greatest commandment is loving our neighbor as ourself, right? Okay, mm -hmm. and... Uh, so in in uh we know that it's love your lord your god all your heart soul mind and strength love your neighbor as yourself but in terms of the the horizontal that includes us you know in society um the commandment the primary commandment is love your neighbor as yourself want yes. for your neighbor the goods the security the resources um the love the good health um the freedom um from from liberate from oppression for your neighbor and your loved ones as we want for ourselves. That's, that is, he said, the primary horizontal or, or, or social commandment for us. And then he gave us um, the a mode of judgment, which is the main mode of judgment that he gives us uh, 
in the Gospels, and that's, of course, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And it says that uh, uh, if you have tried to, <clears throat> to help somebody, to take care of somebody, to be concerned about the common good, the poor, and all of that, and, and those in need, then you go, you go to the right hand, you go to heaven. But as you have not done it to the least of these, you have not done it to me. And it says, and the judgment is when you do not try to help people in the world, and you do not try to make a difference, I guess, uh, conversely, when you, uh, and that is when you hurt people, that's when you go to hell, right? And so those, by Jesus' own estimation, by his own, own mouth, those are, that's the core of the gospel. So when you talk about what is a Christian, we also keep in mind that Jesus gave almost, he gave no doctrines, right? He gave no theology, uh, I, I mean, uh, like a systematic theology, no doc, theological doctrines. He gave ethics, how we are to live in the world, how we're to treat one another. Even the kingdom of God is relational when you really look uh, the way he describes it. And so what I'm suggesting is that what is a Christian? Well, uh, to my mind, and this is how I uh, approach Christianity, it is someone who tries, who, who takes seriously and tries to live by the ethics that Jesus taught, right? And so I am not a Trinitarian. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't get into the, the, the Holy Trinity and all that because I don't have to because it's not, Jesus didn't say anything about that. The closest we come in the gospel is a mistranslation of 1 John chapter 5. Um, and, and so you see what I'm saying? And, and, and the, the problem began, brother, with Constantine in the fourth century. You know, Jesus brought a faith of the oppressed, right? When Constantine uh, became the sponsor of Christianity, he, de he declared himself the 13th apostle appointed by God, which meant nobody could question him. It's at that point that the faith of the oppressed became the official religion of the oppressor. And at that point, it became what you believed and what you confessed became more important than what you did, how you lived. For Jesus, it was how you lived in the world, how you treated people. After that, when you have all these councils that were sponsored by the, the empire, at that point becomes what you believe, what you confess becomes more important. So folk can ask, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? I got what that got to do with you. What I have to do? I mean, I mean, judge how I'm living. I can say anything. Charles Manson said he was a Christian, you know. Uh, so, so if, I hope that's that's helpful. But anyway, that's how I, I see it. Yeah, no, it is is I and I, I always love like to lob it out there because it's um, it the the other part of that is I'm I'm a Christian depending on who's asking. <laughs> <laughs> yes um well you don't have to call yourself anything exactly and, and that, that's the other piece that i that i i, I that i want to add because there was one review um that i came across and the person said that he uh was an atheist and found deep meaning in your book and and who it was centering but even helping him to understand and put language to and so even in, I, for me, I'm, I'm in the space of looking at that 
universal um, uh, thing that we're being pulled to, right? And, mm-hmm. and that we're being pointed to, and, and Christians would say through Jesus, through Jesus's example, mm-hmm. um, but then also knowing that the divine is in in all of us and all around us. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I think it, it grieves me to circle back around um, when the elders uh, who have been through so much articulate their truth about the deep despair that they feel in their body and their bones because they've been through so much and held so much. And I don't, and I want the audience to not hear loss or, 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 or lack of hope, but truly hear the weight of, of walking through the difficulty of white supremacy, the oppression of white supremacy and racism on the body. And seeing it raise its head anew in such a crushing fashion yes yes you're, you're absolutely right and um you know i'm thinking about uh, uh, olivia's father um and why i mean having gone through a second time i, I mean there was a point just a few years ago we would have never believed that the pandora's box would be opened uh, again, like like it has been. So I guess you, you know, folk have suffered so much, and then we get a black president, and there are many people. You know, I, I can remember um, so many elders. They they were just then Obama could do no wrong because he was a fulfillment of their of, of their hopes they, that they never thought would be fulfilled. But then, after living through that, just a few years later, we have a virulent racist, a, a cancer on the backside of humanity, um, who's the most powerful man in the world again. So yes, Thomas, it's got to be horrible for them. It's horrible for me, man. I mean, I mean, it's horrible for, for all of us. And I fear for my, for my grandchildren and I have a four-year-old great-granddaughter. I mean, I fear for I can't imagine what their life is going to be like. And these next couple of years will determine, I think, what the quality of our lives will be like for decades to come. It's frightening. Um, yeah, it's, it's bad. I think that's the part that gives me hope is that we're in that period now where we can determine. And so as you are doing your part in, in a, a, a sector and aspect, and it feels like, I think what we may be unlocked with the protests and George Floyd is, it, is that we have more resources that we can't, we have technology and social media and, and though, the center of that fight as it once was maybe in the black church or evangelicalism, maybe the center of that is shifting. So I, I have hope 
And I think we yeah. still use those tried and true tactics of organizing. And alongside of, ooh, we tired, it's tired. And so we pass that torch down and we each have to do that responsibility uh, of healing our part. Um, I think yeah, it is exhausting. Point. That's that's a good point. I mean, you know, we look at the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, young people getting in, involved. Um, that's a sign of hope. Um, what is a, what raises a question for me though is uh, uh, their very admirable dedication to democratic uh, decentering of of the movement. Um, and, and so there, I'm not going to say there's not a coherent strategy, but there's not, I, I don't think it's incoherent, but we're not seeing the kind of marshalling of, of forces, um, working together that we could, that can change, you know, and I, hopefully it'll, it'll change. Um, and, and I think that if we, and the, progressive part of the church try to try to help and just to share to articulate an ethical foundation uh, for, for, um, for them which they could use prescriptively in other words it, it could prescribe what they would do um, and what they wouldn't do or uh, analytically uh, a, a basis ethical basis which by which they can, um, analyze um, actions and policies and all that, you know, will give it a bit more coherence, but it also can, can bring so many more people into, in, into the flock. If Christians would stop being so doggone Christian, like um, the main thing on it, the most important thing on earth is that, you know, you have to be a Christian, you have to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus never said that. Jesus said, follow me. And, he, and, and if we've got folk to realize what's important is how you live and how you act in the world, that is the only measure of real spirituality. Relationship Amen. With God. If we could do that and bring and come together with, with these young people, my God, what Woo. a movement that would be. So I, you know, from my perspective, I'm trying to be a part of that to whatever extent I can. And there are others are doing, this, uh, are doing the same. Um, we just have to keep fighting it pushing it that was a whole that last part that was a whole sermon right there <laughs> you're know, like that'll preach <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah but not many preachers will be preaching it unfortunately <laughs> no and and i i just i i i i spent a lot of time you know i'm this the the, the old person in this trio um tommy's the youngest person who could literally my, 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 my oldest child is actually older than him. Um, wow. And so, um, but I spend um, a lot of time talking to my young friends, examining here I am in my mid fifties, like, what do I, what does Christianity even mean to me at that, at this point? And I just had a discussion with my husband today, very similar to what you said. It's like all this theology and all this, if you believe these 10 right things, yeah. Doesn't matter what you do, but if yeah. you believe these 10 or eight or five right things, and 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 we would just look at each other, it's like, that can't be it. <laughs> that can't, it, it can't just be all in your head. 
can. And have no bearing on what you do. And, 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 you know, my husband made the point of people within your father's lifetime were going to church on Sunday, leaving church and going to lynching picnics, like the disconnect with that. And so I appreciate you saying <laughs> what you did um, because you're just reiterating a conversation that I had earlier that it, there has got to be some fruit in my life. There's got to be some manifestation in my life. Um, to, to quote James Baldwin, I don't care what you say because I see what you do. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and that just means the world to me. So I, 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 think, I appreciate you saying that. I would that. think Jesus would say the same, the, the same thing, you know, um, uh, and we hear, I, I've heard stupidity, you all probably heard the same thing, something like, well, you know, um, Mahatma Gandhi was a good man, but he, you know, he never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, so he's, unfortunately, he's in hell. You know, that is, that's just plain stupid and has nothing to do with the gospel. Mahatma Gandhi lived the gospel. He lived it, like Jesus said, and, and so he didn't make a certain confession, but that just shows how, 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 how backward and how distorted it, it all has become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I imagine um, if some listeners are sticking with us to this point, a lot of emotions and feelings have came up. And I just invite us to hold that tension um, because this is the work of extracting uh, mm -hmm. ourselves it, out of those strands of teachings that were rooted in white supremacy and designed to dominate our bodies and mm -hmm. alienate us from one another. And that rewiring is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, to your point, it feels like this is one of those moments where for me, this is a redemptive conversation because it's about this reclamation. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. we're getting to reclaim and yeah. redefine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also, this not to, there's one truth spoken in many languages. Mm. Jesus said, I have um, other sheep not in this flock, right? Yeah, I, I think that's necessary, too, when I think about the movements and the, the, the various entry points uh, where people are from either dismantling something, stepping into a new way of being. And so for me, on my journey to affirming myself as a queer person, um, like now I'm beyond sort of this apologetics, but the value of having a guide way out of um, some of the, the socializations that we've been taught in white evangelicalism and how they've worked their way up into law and in and, 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 and public discourse. You, your work um, has created such value for people on that space and so just want to thank you thank you thank you this has been a great conversation and uh, mm. i really uh, appreciate what you're doing and the uh, the depth of your of your thought and your critique and your commitment 
because we're in a war. We are in a war against evil in this. And we can't pussyfoot around with it because they're not playing with us. Mm. So I, I commend you and thank you for mm. all you're doing. Thank you. Because it is so heavy. Because it is re-traumatizing. Our current state of um, this nation. What do you do personally to have a little peace? What brings you joy? You know, in the midst of all of this, uh, family. You know, um, I have two uh, extraordinary granddaughters, uh, twenty-one and twenty-three, and they're just—they're wonderful. Um, you know, we're very close. I've witnessed their birth, and they're very close. And I have a four-year-old great-granddaughter who is. Uh, you can imagine apple in my eye and so you know and i have a, a good good uh, home life i have a wonderful wife and uh you know that that helps but i've been traumatized really i must admit i've i've realized that i've withdrawn from folk i i don't go out like i used to well you know with covid nobody does but i mean i'm i uh i don't stay in touch with my friends like i used to um and you know, I don't know that I, other than that, I have a lot of, a lot of joy, um, sources of joy. Um, we get, you know, uh, eruptions of it in classes, in my classes sometimes, that's, and that, and that is uh, satisfying. But other than that, um, just struggling through, you know, it's, it's really, like with, with everyone else who's, who's really paying attention, it's really hard to keep spirits up. We don't know what's, what's what's happening, so mm -hmm. that's that's what I try to do. Well, I tell you what, when you were talking about your granddaughters and your great granddaughter, your whole face lit up. Uh, you yeah. were beaming. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, they're wonderful. They're they're wonderful. And as you know, I, I dedicate the book to them. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I much not just my granddaughters, great granddaughter. I have two lovely daughters as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, there's your children as well. <laughs> yeah, but you know, they get lost in the sauce. It's like, like one of my daughters asked, I mean, God, Daddy, what? I mean, like she would come and bring my granddaughters, uh, and I would go and hug them. She said, "But I'm here too." You know? I mean, but I've had more life with you, girl. <laughs> yeah, right. But she really, be, you know, she really, was really hurt. Like, why are you ignoring me? Uh, yeah. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It's a good part, <laughs> it's a good part of life. I will just say thank you so much for mm -hmm. even for the difficult parts it is to sit and hear. Um, sometimes thank you for telling the truth mm -hmm. about yes. your experience and also putting pieces and puzzles, uh, the, uh, uh, the puzzle of the truth that's been fragmented back together so thank you mm -hmm. thank you guys i appreciate mm -hmm. i appreciate that and i hope we can uh do this again sometime mm -hmm. it'd be great yeah. absolutely be great. yes all the best and and uh by the way you might share my website is obreyhendrixphd.com okay okay obreyhendrixphd.com uh is my website for the book and i have all kinds of stuff on there um Okay, folks, 
Thank you so much. Yo, that was our show. Thanks for listening to Permission to Be. Um, thank you to our guests. So if you want more information, head on over to permissiontobepodcast.com to check out the show notes. Get some more information on our guests that we post over there. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating. If there's somebody that you want to see on this podcast telling their story, we also want to hear from you. So make sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, Permission to Be Podcast, and we'll see you soon.